Omajina Trimanandasya Jina Jina Salakaya Chakshuan Militanyena Tasma Shri Guru Venamaha Vajakop to Bischa Creepers in the Vivacha Petitana Pabadevio Vaishnavijin Moon Maha Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevaya Nastapreshu Abhyeshu Nicham Bhagavata Sivaya Bhagavat Damashloke Bhakti Bhavati Naistiki. So, good evening, everyone. We will continue tonight with our discussion of the Tattva Sandarbha, the first of the six Sandarbhas of Srila Jiva Goswami, uh, which give us a, a methodology not only for our practice. But as we uh, just chanted from the Bhagavatam, uh, service to both the book Bhagavat and the person Bhagavat is greatly advantageous to our spiritual advancement. Let's begin by chanting this verse that Srila Jiva Goswami utilizes in his Tattvasandarva as a highlight of the remedial cure for the living entity's uh, entanglement in the Lord's external potency. This is from Lord Kapila speaking with his mother, Devahuti, the third canto, 25th chapter. Sata prasangan mamavirya samvido. Sata prasangan mamavirya samvido. Bhavanti hritkarna. Rasayana Katha Bhavanti Karna Rasayana Katha Taz Josanad Ashva Pavarga Vartmani Taz Josanad Ashva Pavarga Vartmani Shradaratir Bhaktir Anu Kramishyati The translation from association with the best devotees, topics of my glorious pastimes become directly realized. Bring the devotee to Nista. Then the topics become an elixir for the heart and ears at the stage of Ruchi. By taste for these topics, Asakti, Bhava, and then praying for the Lord, who is the destroyer of material life, quickly develop in sequence. So we've covered pretty thoroughly the uh, full import of this verse, specifically in relationship to uh, its highlight, uh, Satam Prasangan, its opening words, meaning that our hearing should be from the most, the best sangha that's available. And we discussed also that that sangha, if available, that higher sangha, uh, we should strive for at uh, at the expense of everything, because it is truly the full elixir and the full remedy for our material suffering, material existence. Not that a devotee is looking for relief from suffering, but 
the sadhus refer to it in that way, even though the whole process of devotional service in and of itself is selfless service, uh, irrespective of any conditions, irrespective of any uh, desires on the part of the devotee. Still, we see throughout the Shastra it's spoken of as a remedial measure, as a cure, as uh, liberation itself from material existence, as both an enticement to those that do not know that if one is situated in pure loving affection with the Supreme, really doesn't matter where they are, material world, spiritual world. As uh, Swami Tripurari always says, uh, if you're in love with someone, you can live in the hollow of a tree and be perfectly happy. If you're living in a mansion, but you're not living with people that you love, then you're truly never going to be happy. I told you I was going to try to move a little faster. <laughs> uh, it seems that we're not covering uh, quickly these Sandarvas, but there's much to be learned there, and uh, there's much to be seen in the way that uh, Srila Jiva Goswami pulls from the Bhagavatam the essence of the theology that ends all the misconceptions. And as I've said, misconceptions can be likened to the stage of Anartha Nivriti. Anartha means what? Anartha means that we're putting our we're putting our energy into something that doesn't deserve our energy. It doesn't deserve. It's a putting our love in all the wrong places. We're, we're looking to, to our own misconceptions as, as a validation for an existence that really has no significance. So the more misconceptions that we can dissipate in regards to the material world the more misconceptions we can dissipate as to the practice and the more misconceptions that we can dissipate as to the goal of devotional practice, then that's going to call our progress. And the dissipation of those misconceptions, as the verse we just chanted tells us, is best done in the association of those Prasanga, those that that topmost sangha, prasanga. So we're in that section of Srila Jiva Goswami's Tatvata Sandarbha, where he has given us the basis upon which he's going to move forward in pulling out philosophical conclusions so that we can dissipate those false values, those unwanted uh, conceptions that simply stand in our way. And where has he gone to? He's gone to the revelation of the Bhagavatam itself, Ex this, the experience of a sadhu. And in this instance, the experience of both 
the speaker of the Bhagavatam, Sukadev Goswami, and its author, Srila Vyasadev. So four verses are highlighted by Srila Jiva Goswami in bringing out the revelation of Srila Vyasadev. And in those four verses, we see distinguished the Supreme, the Jiva, and the Lord's external potency. And when we talk about the Supreme, we talk about that Supreme Personality and all his intrinsic potencies, his Shaktis. In other words, that entails the entire transcendental realm. You cannot, Krishna is not alone, so he is with his Shaktis. So the highlight of the last class was what? Srila Jiva Goswami was pointing out the distinction between that Supreme Personality and ourselves. Both conscious entities, for sure, but a major difference when it comes to the Lord's external potency. So he looks to the two verses and tad apashraya Tadapashraya meaning that the Lord's material energy is fully under his control. And the Lord's material energy is fully in control of the jivas. What more do we need to say? That's, that is a distinction enough between what is the position of the jivatma and what is the position of the Paramatma, the Supreme Atma. And last class we started to look at, he's already explained Vyasadeva's revelation, right? Now he's taking an opportunity to highlight this revelation in such a way that we can understand its significance relative to a major misconception. Advaita Vad, Mayavad philosophy. So first he's highlighted the revelation that Vyasadeva saw clearly and he's pointed out what exactly he saw. And now he's He's highlighted the difference between the jiva and the Lord. And he's taking this opportunity now to explain Saikacharya's Mayavad philosophy in the next eight sections, Anuchedas. And why does he do this? If you look at it, what is a unique characteristic of the Mayavad philosophy? The core understanding that they hold is you're Narayan, I'm Narayan, we're all Narayan. That's their ultimate objective. To merge into Brahman to be means to what? Become one with the Supreme. To become in what way? To become that Supreme. 
to merge into your the reality of your existence and the reality of your existence according to Sankaracharya is you are Brahman. So it's a perfect place for Jiva to say, wait a minute, this is a direct it's a direct contradiction of Srila Vyasadeva's revelation. How can we how can anybody accept this Advaita Vad, this Mayavad philosophy? It conflicts with the core understanding of what is provided in the Bhagavatam. So eight Anuchedas. Last week we touched upon what is the danger of Mayavad philosophy as seen by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Raghunath Das, Madhvacharya, and the question was raised, well, why would we're not supposed to hear it? It's bad for you. It's poison. Be better to go into a, a cage with a tiger <laughs> than to hear this philosophy. Why would Jiva put us in a cage with this philosophy, capture our capture our attention, but we're not entering into Mayavad philosophy. We're here to learn its shortcomings. Hearing entails having faith in what's being heard. Jiva is presenting this is all. It's all a complete misconception. Sankaracharya is simply taking the Vedas and giving you a misrepresentation of their essence. And let me show you, first of all, the essence of the Bhagavatam is the revelation that one has, that one can actually experience the Supreme. Sukadeva Goswami experienced the Supreme, and Srila Vyasadeva, following the direction of his spiritual master, also experienced the Supreme. And neither of them merged. Neither of them went into the Supreme in their samadhi or in their revelation and lost themselves entirely. In fact, if you want to look to realization of Brahman, Sukadeva was already there. He was a Jivan Mukta. He already realized that his essence, his sara, the essence of himself, is spiritual in every way. So much so that he walked naked in the world. So much so that even at 16 he could walk in the, into an assembly of, of sages generations older than he and speak the highest truth. So when we hear this philosophy, we're hearing it through the eyes of Jiva Goswami. And there's no danger in that. We're not coming to hear this Mayavad philosophy with the desire that it's going to give us any tangible reality that we can utilize for our spiritual. There's no sambandagyan here. So this evening we're coming to the point where Jiva Goswami is looking at the core values the court I guess we don't want to say values because there is no value because everything's equal and everything's one so one thing cannot be higher than another thing when we come to Brahman because that would mean there would be some distinction 
There's no distinction within Vermont. No higher, no lower, no inner, no outer, no material, no spiritual, no distinction. So what we're going to look at is what is the mentality and the arguments of those that have taken to this methodology. Of course, there is no method because there's no goal, but, but what are their core, what's the core understanding? Because they do see, at least they have enough intelligence to see that there is a state of being Brahman realized and not being Brahman realized. And in the state of not being realized of their true spiritual nature, they're suffering. And they have to explain that. Well, how does that happen? Yeah, that's Brahman realization, to, to realize the self, the true self. And they can see that there is an influence that is impeding that immediate apprehension. It should be immediate because there is no you should just be there. But there's something that's, that's impeding that. And they have to explain that away. So Jiva's going to tell us, well, this is the way they do it. And guess what? This doesn't make any sense. Well, if it's not going to make any sense, we need to understand what doesn't make sense. Uh, put on your seatbelts. <laughs> These guys have some wild ideas. So, radical non-dualism. Why do we call it radical? Because it, it's, it just doesn't fit with anything that we, you would think, or a way that you would think. Too many contradictions. How could you accept it? It's radical. You have to Over the top, yes, extreme. So they have to explain away the jiva and the difference between Brahman and this jiva. They start by saying that there is maya and maya consists of knowledge and ignorance. And when Brahman touches knowledge, vidya, where it touches vidya, where the totality of Brahman contacts knowledge, what do we have? We have a shwara. We have the supreme. And where Brahman comes in contact with maya as avidya, as ignorance, the result is the jiva. I don't get it at all. This is how they explain that. Okay. Okay. Basically what the Advaita Vad says is saying is the formless, attributeless, indivisible, non-variegated, impersonal Brahman. That's their reality. This is a definition. It's formless, it has no attributes, it's indivisible, it's not variegated, it's impersonal. So how do we explain the separate existence of the jiva and ashvara? Which in reality are what? Illusions. They don't really exist. Their explanation is, well, they came in contact. Brahman comes in contact with knowledge and ignorance. 
and therefore we have what we call the jiva and ishvara. Now, if you can remove that contact, you're now realized. And they don't really see you attain realization, you always were realized. Well, there's no question of forgetting. So how do they, how does that contact happen? happen with knowledge and ignorance with Maya. How do they explain it? They have two basically ap approaches. Parichedavad and Pratibimbavad. So let's start with the pari Paricheta. Their explanation is just as we have the sky everywhere, which would be the great Brahman, and you have a pot. Inside the pot there's also a portion of the great sky. By that upadi, okay, what, what, what is it a body again? Designation. A designation. By the designation of the pot, the jiva can be seen as within what pot? What is the pot of the jiva? It's the subtle and gross body. It's not doesn't really exist for the Brahman, and for that portion of Brahman, it's not really there. But the jiva is a, is is connected with it through ignorance. Okay, so that's one explanation. Parichedavad. Then, if you break the pot and it all, you're out. You're there. You merge with Brahman. The limitation of Brahman. Now this particular Parichedavad was formulated by one disciple of Sankaracharya, Vachaspati Mishra, in the ninth century, and he wrote a commentary on the commentary of Sankara on Vedanta Sutra. Sankara's Vedanta Bhashya his commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. What what is what what is the significance again of a commentary on the Vedanta Sutra? What does that do for a religious well, a spiritual movement? What? It distinguishes it. Distinguishes it in what way? It's Abhasha distinguishes the understanding of Vedanta or the Vedas, it distinguishes an understanding of Vedanta one from another. So Sankara's radical non-dualism in personal Mayavad philosophy came about from Sankaracharya's commentary on the Vedanta Sutras. This Chapati Mishra, he gave his own commentary on that commentary wherein he revealed this Parichedavad. No need for all these details, just understand this is one explanation for Sankaracharya's overriding Mayavad philosophy. This particular viewpoint of Parichedavad, meaning basically the delimitation of the jiva is only it's, it's similar to a pot, and if we can just, and the pot consists of the ignorance that surrounds this small portion 
of the great Brahman in the form of a gross and subtle body. And that body is formed of what? Well, it's formed of Brahman, but that Brahman is what? This is an aspect of Brahman which is ignorance, avidya. How could Brahman be avidya? It has no attributes. That's your question. It's a good question. Now, there's another way that they explain this entanglement. Another illustration that they use. And that's another vod. A way of looking at things. Prati Bimba Vod. Brahman is reflected in a vidya. Like the sun is reflected in so many bodies of water. Okay, that's pretty good. It's a reflection. Sound good? Yeah, of course. There's different pots, different bodies for Brahman to be reflected in. There's big pots, small parts. There's dirty water in some of the pots. There's clean water in some. It's, it, that works a little better than the pot. The water thing is, it's like, now we're getting some. We have more to work with there. This Pratibhimbavad is also one of the explanations that they use. So various, various receptacles of water give you a reflection of the sun. And the sun appears differently according to what it's reflected in. And if the reflection is in knowledge, not ignorance, in other words, the water is pure, not contaminated, the purest water is going to give you a reflection that we would call the Supreme God. He doesn't really exist. He's a reflection of Brahman. He doesn't have any characteristics. Brahman has no characteristics, no shaktis. But when you take the great Brahman and you reflect it in pure water of knowledge within this material realm, then that's the best you could get. You can call that a god. You can look at it. It's God, but really, it's not really God because God has no qualities. He has no form. He has no associates, no powers. He's just, it's just like the jiva, except he's got clean water to be reflected in. The jiva of one is, the reflection of one is in knowledge. The reflection of the other is in ignorance. But the ignorance and the knowledge are not really are not really associated with Brahman. They're associated with Maya. Still, where did they come from? We still come back to this. Where did this ignorance and this knowledge come from? So this particular Pratibhimbavad uh, was formulated by Padma Padacharya uh, from the Pancha Padika commentary on Sankara's Sankara Bhashya Vedanta Sutra. So, two followers of Sankara, they have two points of view. Still within the same what? Neither of them wrote a new commentary on the Vedanta Sutra. So we don't have a new Sampradaya. Right? They, never, they didn't make significant enough changes in the teachings of their predecessors to constitute 
a complete new comment. They didn't come up with something really significant. It was just two different ways of explaining Brahman. But their, their core understanding is still the Supreme, according to the Vedas, is Brahman. Impersonal. There's not a personality behind that. The Supreme. So let's look to the commentary and a little deeper explanation of how to see these two philosophies. So the first one, Prachetavad, before we get to that explanation, let's talk about a little bit more of the terminology that these Mayavadis use. Because there's other things, there's more things to explain than just it's a pot of reflection. I mean, there's more to this to this dynamic of ignorance and knowledge which constitutes illusion to them. So let's talk about existence. How do they look at existence? They look at they look at existence as coming to the portion of Brahman which is illusioned by ignorance as being of in th three different stages. That existence can be illusory existence, empirical existence, and ontological existence. So they look at existence in three ways. So illusory existence is just that. It's an illusion. There's no empirical experience to substantiate that existence. It's a dream state. It's accepting a rope as a stake until you turn the lights on and you see it's a rope. It's a state of existence. You can't deny that there is illusion. But the illusion is not based on what our senses tell us is reality. So that's illusory existence. And it only lasts as long as the misconception is not dissipated by a valid perception. It's only there as long as there's not a proper... It can only exist that long until the lights come on or till you see from empirical knowledge that it just doesn't work. So their tattva is telling there's three kinds of existence. One is illusory and the illusory is what? It's not executable. You can't kill the rope. It's a rope. It's not going to die. You thought it was a snake. To kill a rope that you think is a snake, it just can't happen. So it's not executable. Then we come to the, to the next one. And that's experience of the world through empirical senses. It's what you ex would experience in normal waking consciousness, and it's, it's executable. I can take an apple from the tree, and I can taste it. So it's, it's an executable reality. It's a, these are their existences. But they're not the ultimate ontological truth. For the, for the Mayavad. Their ontological reality is what? Brahman. You can't taste it. It doesn't have any attributes. 
So their ontological reality is basically underlying everything that you accept, either illusory or not. It underlies, it, it's, it's in everything, their ontological reality. It pervades everything. But understand that those two other states of existence are truly not the ultimate reality. Because their ultimate reality is nothingness. Spiritual suicide. Somethingness without anything. Yes. And somethingness that's certainly without what? The suffering, suffering of material existence. So how do they look to the elements of the material world? Objects in the material world they see as having five characteristics. The objects, it's all around them, have five characteristics. They exist. You can perceive their existence. They hold some attraction. They realize that knowledge or ignorance holds some attraction for that little portion of their all, oneness of themselves. Those are empirical realities regarding the nature and the characteristics of everything. Those three. They exist. They're perceivable. You know, they know, you know they exist. And they have some, some ability to attract you. And two other characteristics... They have form and they have a name. Now these last two are of the world only. They don't exist on the ontological plane. The name and the form. Because when we become realized there's no names or forms anymore. There's still existence. You still perceive existence you're still there's still an attractiveness but not an attractiveness that differentiates one one Brahman from another because there's only one they're really struggling to try to make something that makes sense and really struggling to make nothing out of something Yes, that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> really struggling to make nothing out of something. Yeah. So, Brahman has no higher existence that can negate it by valid perception or scriptural authority. Did anyone catch that? No. Okay. <laughs> Brahman, Brahman, which does exist, there's nothing that can negate its existence. There's no perception that you can have to negate the existence of Brahman. This is one of their tenets. And even scriptural authority cannot negate it. Jiva Goswami will now proceed to use Sankaracharya's own explanations of the two lower grades of reality, what are those? Name and form, to refute both the paricheta and the pratibimba vods. He's going to refute both of them using Sankar's own 
philosophy to show that it just that these conclusions cannot be validated. And what are those conclusions that cannot be validated? That Brahman can be qualified into an embodiment or that Brahman can be reflected into ignorance, an embodiment of ignorance, or reflected into ignorance in such a way as to provide a situation for a jiva or an ishvara. So what's basically being presented here is Prajnavad says that the upadis, in this instance the pot theory of the pot, that the ignorance can delimit one portion of Brahman from another, and we call that the jiva, and when the jiva is in that ignorance, it can't be self-realized. So let's first of all go to the Bhagavad Gita, because the Sankarcharas, the Advaitavads, they accept Bhagavad Gita as the as authoritative scripture. To do that, they quote Bhagavad Gita 13.13, Brahman, beginningness and subordinate to me, lies beyond the cause and effect of this material world. So I'll share with you Sankaracharya's commentary to this verse from the Bhagavad Gita, which Jiva Goswami shows is not a valid explanation. And it's interesting. So here's his commentary on this verse. Okay, Brahman, beginningness and subordinate to me, lies beyond the cause and effect of this material world. Sankaracharya. But this Brahman, which is to be known, lies beyond the reach of the senses and hence it can be known only by its direct intuition in the form of sacred sound revelation. Therefore, unlike a clay pot and other such objects, it is not subject to discriminative analysis and thus cannot be determined either to exist or to not exist. For this reason, it can never be called sat or asat. One thing about great thinkers a great thinker when presenting something will never contradict himself what does Sankaracharya do right here he begins by saying what but this Brahman which is to be known he says this Brahman is to be known it lies beyond the reach of your senses we accept that we look at Krishna and we realize Krishna lies beyond Brahman is his fulfillment also lies beyond. Sometimes we can perceive the Brahman and we beg Krishna to take away that effulgence so we can see his smiling face. But it's not. It's not to be had with material sense perception. Nabhaved Grahamindriya Atashri Krishna Namadi Nabhaved Grahamindriya The Indriyas with the senses you're not going to perceive Krishna. So similarly, we agree. It lies beyond the cause and effect of this material world, as this verse from Bhagavad Gita explains. So Sankarcharya, looking at the verse, says, yes, this Brahman, which is to be known, lies beyond the reach of the senses, 
And then he continues. And then at the end of this very paragraph, what he, what's he say? It is not subject to discriminative analysis and thus cannot be determined to either exist or to not exist. If I'm supposed to know something, I'm supposed to know it, but I can't determine it. it it's impossible for me to determine if it exists or not exist. It's not possible to determine if it even exists. If you can't even determine if it exists, how can you know it? So Jiva says, what is this? Who would give this kind of an explanation? This is not a valid way. Then it goes on, for this reason it can never be called sat or asat. It can't be called sat or asat. You can't determine if it exists or doesn't exist, but you're supposed to know it. I know it's kind of thick. And I know, know you might say, well, why? What is he? Just waste my I want to hear a Leela or tell me something. But I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something about what, where the underlying value is in the great Siddharvas of Jiva. We become fortified in our practice by hearing these explanations. We become convinced beyond any chance of a reasonable doubt. And if there is a reasonable doubt, you'll see as we go through these Sandarvas, Jiva will, will deal with any reasonable doubt which we may have, and he will also provide us with doubts of his own, and he'll refute those for us. And we'll walk away with, is there any question that Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead? Is there any question as to what is the nature of his form, of his qualities, of his associates? Any question of his interactions with all of his shaktis? All of these things will be dealt with systematically over the six Sandarvas. Four of those Sandarvas are going to deal specifically with understanding Krishna fully. And we're starting now in the Tattva Sandarbha. We'll go then to the Paramatma Sandarbha, which deals with Krishna's Purusha manifestations in the material realm. And all of the avatars of Krishna coming through those Purusha manifestations to capture the interest of the jivas within material existence. Krishna is a little different. He also comes, but they say he comes like the other others, but he doesn't, because all the others are contained within him. And we're studying here in Brahman, and it's interesting. I'm reading uh, for class and studying this particular tapas and dharma for preparation of class. But I'm also reading at the same time Bhagavat Sandharva. So it's interesting at this stage, I'm also reading in Bhagavat Sandharva exactly how to understand that Krishna himself personally pervades the entire entirety of existence, just like Brahman, but personally. 
And this is brought out in the prayers of Bishmadev. It's first brought out in the in the in the Brahma Vibohan Leela. Certain aspects of that are brought out, and then other aspects are brought out in relationship to Bishmadev's prayers. So we walk here. We're being presented with the Brahman, this impersonal conception, and then when we get to the to the Bhagavat Sandarbha, Jiva Goswami is going to give us a very in-depth analysis coming from the Bhagavatam of how Krishna is pervading everything personally as Krishna. So Krishna is pervading everything. Well, wait, but Paramatma is in the heart. Is that Krishna or is it Paramatma? What's it depend upon? Who resides in the heart of the Jiva? The Paramatma? Or Krishna himself? Or Sita and Ram? What's making that distinction? Yes. The affection or lack of affection, for some it's Krishna, for some it's Sita Ram. For some it's Shaitanya Dev. Or Macha or Korma or Nishringa or or simply Paramatma who's just observing. It's the same supreme absolute personality of Godhead who is interaction interacting with his potencies drawn to reveal different aspects of his personality based on affectionate relation. These things matter. This is the way they think. This is the, the logic, the faulty logic that Sankaracharya applied to the Vedanta. Any questions about any of this? Anything else? Thank you so much for your association.